if you think of New Year's resolutions as something that only relates to diet and exercise, it could be time to rethink your version of January. Here at Cross Border Solutions, we're all about New Year's resolutions, only we're not trying to lose weight or break our smartphone addictions, well, maybe a little. Instead, we're making resolutions to be even better corporate tax professionals. And as it so happens, the income tax provision is a great place to start. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show Tax Provision. And today we're here with tax provision expert, our own Howard Telson, reflecting on some intelligent corporate income tax practices that we've picked up throughout the year just from listening to the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Here, we're sharing five tax provision New Year's resolutions, all gleaned from this podcast, which reminds us if you're not listening to the Fiona Show every week, well then add that to the top of your list. Starting us off though, with resolution number one, is keep your effective tax rate in line with your peers, or you could raise red flags. And here's Howard from episode one, an introduction to the income tax provision. It really is the benchmarking exercise. So it's, you know, last quarter you had this effective tax rate. What's your effective tax rate this quarter? Last year, your effective tax rate was X. This year, it's Y. What does that mean? Why did it go up or down? What kind of changed in the company? What kind of drove that up or down? Obviously, companies want to be trending down as opposed to up. And then looking at it versus competitors, right? So if you're you know, a competitor in one space, you want to look at it versus other competitors in that same space. And you want to say, am I with my peers? Am I kind of in the same ballpark as my peers? Am I, am I higher or am I lower? If I'm higher, why is that? You know, can I drive my effective tax rate down to be in line with my peers? Maybe I'm too low. Maybe it's extremely low and the investing community is starting to worry, you know, what are they really doing to make it so low? And then you really have to look at that and say, why is it so low? You know, Generally, you want your effective tax rate to be low, but if it's way lower than the rest of the kind of your competitors and peers, you know, that could raise a red flag as to like, what is that? What is driving that? You would need to explain that kind of as a a tax department, as a company. Thank you so much again for being with us today, Howard. Thanks, Matt, for being here. I really appreciate it. Howard, your reaction. What do you think all this time later of just the point being made here about the effective tax rate and how you measure up to your competitors. Yes. You know, I think when we think about effective tax rate, you know, I always like to think about it as you have kind of benchmark from a benchmarking perspective. So you have your internal benchmarking, which is sort of comparing to yourself quarter over quarter, year over year. How has your effective tax rate changed? You know, is it in line with the prior years? Is it not in line to prior years or prior quarters? If not, why? You know, sometimes it's perfectly fine that your effective tax rate is different than a prior year or a prior quarter, but as long as you could explain why, right? You know, if it went way up or way down, there should be obviously a valid explanation for why that is. And that's kind of looking internally. And then, like you said, you want to look externally, right, as well and say, how do I compare with my peers? You know, if I'm Coke, obviously Coke's effective tax rate, you would think, you know, kind of logically should be similar to Pepsi's effective tax rate. If I'm Coke and I have a way higher effective tax rate than Pepsi, that could be an issue. You know, I would, if I were the CFO, I would probably look to my tax department and say, you know, what is going on? Why aren't we in line with our key competitor here? So, you know, it's something that tax departments are always actively looking to manage, always actively looking to understand. And, you know, if it's way higher, way lower, they should be able to explain that. Is there investor interest in, in, from that perspective? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, when you think about the stakeholders kind of involved, 
when we think about you know the financial statements and, and the effective tax rate being a key component of those financial statements, you have your your internal stakeholders, you know the folks inside the company, like your finance department, accounting, tax, and then you have your external stakeholders. So uh, folks like investors, folks like your financial statement auditors, you know even folks like regulators, you know potentially the SEC and potentially even the IRS. So you know you have all these different kind of parties who who may be interested in your tax position and your effective tax rate kind of being one of the key measures that it always comes down to. And I don't want to make too much of this from an outsider observation, but I can't help but notice the opposition to transfer pricing, which is you know stop comparing yourself to your competitors. Transfer pricing, it's one of the methodologies obviously to calculate transfer pricing is looking at comparables, but I guess you don't want to get too hung up on looking at your your peers. But from an effective tax rate perspective, I think it's similar where, you know, you want to sort of look at your peers and see how you're doing against them. But obviously every company is unique. And just because your peers have a particular effective tax rate, particular facts, they may have very different facts than you. And and therefore you may have a very different effective tax rate to them. As long as you could explain that and as long as there's logic behind that, you know, that may be perfectly fine. Right. Whether it's transfer pricing or tax provision, it remains true. Don't look at anything through just one lens, which is an important point to ram home. On to resolution number two, we have understand the tax, understand accounting rules and tax rules in details. Know the ins and outs of how they differ so you can make an accurate M1 adjustment. You need to understand both sets of rules. But then you need to understand all the exceptions that go along with each set of rules. So even if you understand kind of the general principles, it's usually not enough. You need to go into the detail and look at each specific item and see, you know, how is this specific item treated for tax? You have to start at the accounting rules. You have to understand the treatment, what goes into them, and then consider the tax rules. You have the accounting rules, you understand the treatment. You have the tax rules, you understand that treatment. And once you have the two treatments kind of down pat, then you look at the two, you compare the two, and then you have to adjust to get in between the two. So Howard, this comes from our third episode on the difference between accounting and tax rules. It might help our audience best if we go over that difference very briefly one more time. What is that difference? Yeah, sure. So so let's recall we have two sets of rules and, you know, as a tax professional, you're left to reckon both sets and you really need to understand both sets. And their main reason why is because the tax rules start with the accounting. So when you're, when you're working on your tax provision, your starting point is your accounting, your pre-tax book income, and your accounting under generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. And then you have to make applicable adjustments to get to your, your, your taxable income and your tax treatment, right? So, so for tax, we're always kind of straddling these two sets of rules. And then when we think about the provision, you know, even more specifically, not only do we have to apply the tax rules and, you know, starting from our accounting point, but then we also have to apply the accounting rules when it comes to the tax. So we have to apply our tax accounting and then make the applicable journal entries and things like that. So, you know, one thing to mention just when we're thinking about accounting versus tax and how they differ is just kind of going back to the, the core principles, right? So the core principle of accounting, which is on, you know, generally accepted accounting principles, is that basically you're accounting under the accrual method. So the accrual method basically says you record an expense when that activity is incurred or when that expense is incurred. And then you record revenue as that revenue is essentially earned, right? So it doesn't really think about cash. It's thinking about matching up uh, your expenses and your income with when those activities are actually performed. So when you earn the income or when you have the 
services that lead to you know the expense. But then when you think about tax, the baseline for, for tax treatment is the, the cash method. So now we're saying it's, it's not this accrual method, it's actually cash. So when cash comes in the door, you recognize income. And when cash goes out the door, you recognize expense, you know, basically how individuals sort of pay their tax. However, you know, it's never that simple with, with tax, right? So, so basically, you know, for corporations, they have to deal with not just a, a plain vanilla kind of cash method for tax purposes, but a modified cash method where, you know, some of the things that they're doing, tax will equal book and, you know, tax will follow essentially the accrual treatment, but then other ones it won't. And you'll have to go by more of the, the cash treatment. For example, not being able to take a deduction until you maybe have that cash outlay. While for accounting, you know, you would take the expense right away as you incur it. And then likewise, you know, on the, on the income side for accounting, you may not be able to record that income until you actually perform the service but you know, for tax, there there's circumstances where you would have to record income when you get the cash, even before that service is performed. So you know, you sort of have to straddle these two rules and really understand both quite well to be able to do provision effectively. In which case, on to resolution number three, and that's update your provision model in real time every quarter. But are there occasions such as Q3 in which a company is calculating both their quarterly provision? and beginning the process, gathering the documents for the total provision? It's a great question. And Q3 is generally more work than Q1 and Q2 most of the time. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So one, you could be doing your return to provision within Q3, as I mentioned, you know, the company may have their tax return kind of finalized and filed at that point. So you may need to do your return to provision within that quarter, in addition to the kind of regular quarterly procedures you're doing on every quarter. And then also, as you kind of alluded to, you may have the ability to start collecting data related to the full year at this point and really start to dig into numbers. So throughout the year, companies will vary in how they do this, but generally a tax department that's pretty on top of transactions and other happenings going on at the company, they will update their provision model real time for things as they happen through the quarterly process. And Q3, at this point, you're already nine months in. So a lot has happened at this point, and there's only three months to go. So it's very possible that you kind of knocked out a good amount of the work, you know, by Q3, if you really accelerated things and tried to evaluate transactions and other business happenings kind of early in the process. Howard, just your reaction there, especially given the emphasis you put on Q3 and the amount of work involved. Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking at your provision, you know, every quarter's a, a bit different. And generally, e- the easiest quarters of the year are typically Q1 and Q2. And then as you, as you get into, you know, Q3 and Q4, you know, Q4 is kind of the obvious one because it's the full year provision. It's the whole boat. You're doing everything. You're updating your deferreds. You know, you're calculating a, a full-blown effective tax rate. The auditors are coming in and doing a full-blown audit as opposed to on the quarters, they're, they're looking at more of just a review. So it's, it's really kind of the whole king caboodle. You're really doing everything for the full year. Then Q3, you know, sometimes gets overlooked, but Q3 actually could be also quite a bit of work as well. Reason being that many companies will actually end up filing their return in the third quarter. Therefore, they'll need to do their return to provision calculation in the third quarter as that return is finalized and and potentially filed. And then the other thing, you know, some companies will start doing in the third quarter and as they near the end of the year is, you know, as they've been through, you know, about nine months of activity, they'll start to understand the various transactions, you know, that took place during the year and they'll start really gearing up for year end. 
So some of them will do almost like a hard close provision as they get closer and closer to year end to kind of lighten the load for the full year provision in Q4. Therefore, you know, Q3 tends to be a bit more work than Q1 and Q2 as you sort of ramp up for Q4 and try to accelerate some of that Q4 full year work, you know, uh, rather than kind of leaving it all for the end. So basically, I think the lesson here is that the further you move along in the year, kind of the more and more work that goes into your provision. But of course, you know, the more you can kind of front load and maybe look at those one-off transactions, those discrete items, those things that maybe are different from last year, the more you can look at them in real time as they happen and account for them, you know, typically the better off you are. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. and that's taken from episode five, the tax provision process. We're on to resolution number four, which I think can help with our last point a little bit, but that's embrace technology. Here's your colleague and mine, Michael Cavanaugh. So the best thing a company can do to improve the speed and accuracy of the provision calculation is to get into a software environment. And while most of the Fortune 500 companies in the United States are in a controlled software environment, that's not the majority of American or U.S. corporations that are required to calculate their provisions. And according to research, up to 80 or 85 percent of U.S. corporations continue to do their calculations in an Excel environment. So, and companies know they need to get out of Excel and their auditors prodding them to get out of Excel, but they just haven't found the right product yet. But when they do find the right products, once they get into a controlled environment, they find that the data is internally consistent. The data is stored in a secure environment requiring authorized access. The calculations are proven to be accurate and correct. The data can be tracked by using the system's audit functionality. There is transparency in the data calculations, and there is traceability to the original source data. And additionally, that the data can be analyzed. Analytics tools enable companies to go beyond the number crunching and pursue more value-added activities, such as tax planning, to improve the management of their overall tax function and reduce their effective tax rate. And in my experience in public accounting, what I see mostly is that companies are just so beleaguered and so anxious to get through the the drudgery of data wrangling, of getting all the data together, getting all their ducks lined up, doing the calculations, and then just producing the deferred amounts, the current provision calculation, and the journal entries, all the stuff, all the ingredients that they need in finance to finalize the financial statements and really close the books and make known to the investors the results of their of operations for their period. That kind of comes all through the crucible of the tax provision. 
Howard, what do you think of where we've come from even five years ago versus where we are now, cross-border, inside and out? When I think about technology around the tax process, and specifically the, the provision process, there's really kind of there, there's several areas where technology really helps companies. And you know, two of the areas that really stand out is kind of on the front end and the back end of the process. So the front end is when you're kind of starting your provision, your starting point is your accounting data, right? Your trial balance and other supporting schedules. And a big, big headache for, for tax departments is kind of wrangling all that data together and getting it sort of in a usable format for your provision, getting it into a place where you could start actually applying tax logic and start saying, you know, this is how I'm doing my tax calculations, but I need to get all this data together into the requisite format first. It's it's nothing technical. It's nothing that really should be uh, that big of a hurdle, but it seems for every tax department to be an issue. It's just data wrangling, right? So technology is, is something that really, really helps with that, you know, whether it's kind of getting the right file sharing process together, whether it's, you know, implementing version control processes, or whether it's using kind of a cloud-based tool to organize your documents and understand priority and to understand, you know, where data is coming from, who's reviewed it, how it's changed, things like that. It's vitally important and something that is improving in the industry, but it seems like a lot of companies are still a bit behind there. So that's kind of, you know, on the front end, getting the data in. And then the back end is once you're kind of through the process, reviewing the data, you know, updating the data for changes, applying analytics, understanding where all the data is coming from and where it's going. Um, you know, that's a huge issue as well, where companies will will do their provision once, but then, you know, since tax is kind of the last piece of the puzzle in the accounting close, the accounting team will come to them and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, our trial balance just changed. You need to run a new tax provision. And then they're left scrambling and then they have to run a new tax provision. They have to do basically everything they just did for a second time. They have to do a compare and contrast from their last file. And it becomes a nightmare. It becomes a version control nightmare. It becomes asking for a manual error. So technology really helps there on the back end too, saying that I compare this version to the last version. I could fully trace my numbers. I could fully tie them out. And then I could do analytics to understand how our results compare this quarter to last quarter, this year to last year, this version to last version. So, you know, I see technology really helping in those two elements, the front end and then the back end. And I I think we'd be remiss without saying that technology, wherever it's being applied, makes the process not only more efficient, but also more cost effective. I think there's a couple of different ways to think about cost, right? Sometimes, you know, a lot of companies are just using their Excel spreadsheet right now and they think, well, I understand the benefits of technology. I understand the automation. I understand moving in a controlled environment. I understand how error prone and non-scalable Excel is, but I don't want to pay anything. You know, Excel is essentially free. So why would I move to a software when I have this free solution? And, you know, when we think about cost, there's there's a couple of different ways to think about it. One is it's time savings, right? So everyone's time has a value. And if you could use your time for, for other things, there's an opportunity cost to that time. And, you know, sometimes folks are spending hours upon hours in excess of what they have to on their provision. And if you could implement the software and save 20, 30 hours at year end and, you know, several hours on the quarter, you know, how much is your time worth? And, you know, if you could put a dollar value on that, a lot of times that equation sort of leans to, okay, software is uh, very valuable there. And then the other thing is risk. How much of a dollar sign could you put on risk? Being in an uncontrolled spreadsheet really opens the company up to a lot of risk for manual error. So, you know, if you're in a controlled environment, 
it's automated and much less error prone, could you put a dollar figure on that? So there, there's all these different kind of circumstances, especially for companies right now in Excel, to really understand and reason that even though there may be an additional dollar sign on software, the benefits of reduced risk and then you know opportunity cost of how you spend your time is huge. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and that brings us to resolution number five and that's keep an eye on the future tax laws are always changing and the only way to keep up is to make sure you know what's happening and how change could affect you so just for some more background so on september 15th the house ways and means committee approved the $3.5 trillion of spending and tax relief provisions, which are offset in part by corporate and individual tax increases by a 24 to 19 vote. And this bill is known as the Build Back Better bill. So, you know, it's been uh, in the news quite a bit and, and folks have probably heard about it, but this is kind of will be the, the focus of today's discussion. But just holistically, when we think about the tax provision, we need to think of the two key pieces that make up the tax provision. So we have the current piece, which is essentially an estimate of current year tax liability. And then we have the deferred piece, which really serves to accrue a benefit or expense for the future impact of items on a company's tax liability. The deferred side is really driven by things like temporary book to tax differences, net operating loss and credits, things that impact your tax liability in the future. For a kind of a full refresher on those concepts, we do have previous episodes that go into detail on both the current and the deferred sides of the house. Given these two components at hand, we need to understand how any changes kind of proposed in this bill would impact a company's current year tax liability and then also their deferred tax profile. And and there really are two kind of buckets of changes to consider. So one is a change to the tax rate, you know, which we'll talk about. And then the other is changes to the tax base. The rate is obviously kind of self-explanatory, but the base would be kind of the income or expenses mix that's changing and and what actually the rate is being applied to. Changes to a tax rate are fairly simple on the current provision. Basically, in the period where the tax rate is effective, a company would apply that rate to their taxable income and calculate their kind of applicable, you know, federal tax expense for, we'll just focus on federal since we're talking about right now, federal U.S. tax reform. So, you know, if if a rate changes, you would apply that, that new rate in the year it's effective to a company's taxable income and calculate their applicable federal tax expense. That's very similar to how you would do a tax return because that's kind of what the current provision mirrors. 
But the changes to the tax rate on the deferred side of the house are, are a lot more complex. So for purposes of the deferred tax calculation, which, you know, as I said, looks at the future impact of items on a company's tax liability, companies need to consider how these are impacted even before a new rate is effective. So rather, you know, a company's deferred tax assets and liabilities must be revalued as soon as a new tax rate is enacted. So not effective, but enacted. And by enacted, I mean that essentially it's signed into law, just at a high level. Let's just say this Build Back Better plan is signed into law within 2021, of course, a, a very real possibility. But its tax rate change isn't effective until 2022. Once again, that's kind of the most likely scenario. Well, in, in this case, folks are still going to have to reckon with the rate change on their deferred tax assets and liabilities since this rate change would be enacted in 2021. So on folks' 2021 provision, they're still going to have to deal with this, even though this tax rate change isn't effective until 2022. So for purposes of kind of the deferred revaluation, it doesn't matter if it's effective, but instead it's just a matter of, is it enacted or is it signed into law? And if so, companies need to consider the impact and revalue their deferred tax assets and liabilities in the year it's enacted. So in this case, it would be in 2021. So this could impact companies very, very soon on their provision. And now, of course, you know, just shifting gears slightly, you know, any change to the rate overall also impacts the effective tax rate. So as the statutory rate potentially increases, this would generally, of course, increase companies' effective tax rates. And that would be in the year it's effective. So that would be most likely, you know, 2022 when that, rate, when that rate change is actually effective. But the deferred tax revaluation would also impact ETR as well. And as mentioned, this would be in the year of enactment. So potentially, you know, that would be 2021 for companies. So you would potentially have to revalue your deferreds in 2021, and then you would have that ETR impact in 21 as well. So things could be potentially coming for in terms of provision very, very soon in terms of this tax reform bill. Howard, your reaction there were a couple months following this episode and also most of the drama surrounding the creation of this law. One of the key uh, things to do with, with the tax provision or with it, uh, any tax function in general is keeping abreast of, uh, of developments and changes, both tax law and tax accounting. And, you know, one of the things that some folks think when they're looking at tax law changes, especially with regard to their provision, is they say, for example, we're in 2021 right now, we're in late 2021, and we have this Build Back Better plan kind of moving through Congress. You know, it's passed in the House, it's currently in the Senate. And, and you know, it's unclear whether, whether it's going to be passed or not, but it, it very well could be in some form. And a lot of folks will look at that and say, well, it seems the effective date of most of these provisions is in 2022, right? So I don't really need to worry about it for 2021. I'm sort of okay for now. I could hold off until 2022, where potentially there's a tax rate change. Potentially there's a way I have to change uh, calculating my tax base, whether that's on the international tax side or whether that's some other you know, tax provisions on the domestic side. But this is all sort of in the future, right? This is all sort of looking forward to 2022. But the problem is on the provision, when a law is enacted, when it's actually signed into law by the president, passed by Congress and signed by the president into law, you know, a bill in the U.S. Uh, becomes law and is enacted, you actually need to account for it in your financial statements. And the, the shape that takes in your provision is basically the current provision is looking at the current tax for the year. It's basically a mirror for your tax return, an estimate for your tax return. And that won't really be affected, right? Because that's all 2021 law. Basically, you'd be applying and calculating taxable income under 2021 law. But your deferred tax, on the other hand, is sort of looking forward. 
and saying, what is the impact of this item going to be on my tax liability in the future? Is it going to lead to a deferred tax asset? Is it going to lead to a deferred tax liability? And then how is that going to be treated in the future? How is that going to flip? At what rate, et cetera? So when we're thinking about pending legislation and specifically this Build Back Better plan, we really do need to think of it in terms of our deferred tax roll forward. And we need to say, you know, if there is a rate changing, do I have to revalue my deferreds at a different rate? You know, if there's laws changing, how do those laws impact the future taxability or deductibility of certain items? Because the deferred roll forward is a continuum that's kind of looking forward. And it's not just 2021. It's kind of the whole life of the company. And it's saying you have these ending assets and liabilities and making sure that those are valued appropriately. Right. So when we think about the provision, it's not just looking at a vacuum, you know, at this one year and the changes for this one year. It's looking at kind of everything and looking forward and saying, if something is going to be enacted this year, we really need to account for it. You know, we have basically the, the impact of these items on the actual tax provision calculation itself. But then we have this kind of whole other area of the tax department, which is obviously planning. Three of the prongs of the tax department is, is your compliance. So, you know, sort of looking back in the past at your compliance, doing your tax returns and making sure everything's in order. And then you have your provision, you know, your, your tax accounting, making sure your financial statements are in order. And then you have your third prong, which is tax planning. So, which is looking forward to the future. So, uh, you know, to be an effective tax organization in a company, you really need to have all three of those humming along. And the only way to do that is to be basically staying abreast on, on recent legislation and understanding future legislation and what could be coming down the pike. Because, you know, if you're a company and you may be looking at a tax rate change or a change to your tax base, a change to how foreign earnings are calculated, et cetera, you really need to plan for that, right? Because you don't want to be taken off guard. You want to do everything you could to kind of mitigate the negative effects of potential changes and then, you know, capitalize on any potential positive effects. And, and one example of this is if there is a kind of a rate change coming, you know, we saw it in 2017 when the, when the rate went down from 35% to 21% for corporations. But in this case, it's possible the rate goes up. And, you know, if the rate were to go up and, and you sort of were planning ahead and potentially knew it was coming, you could actually defer expenses to future years where you'll get a more valuable tax deduction, where you could accelerate income to this year where it'll be taxed at a lower rate. So as opposed to you know that income next year potentially being taxed at a higher rate, you could have a tax this year at a lower rate and you could save on that arbitrage, get a permanent tax savings. And that's what a lot of folks did in 2017 with the reverse where the rate went down. So tax planning is really key. You know, Staying abreast of these changes, understanding how these changes impact your company and understanding what you could do right, to plan uh, for these changes, both from you know, an effective tax rate perspective on your provision and also just from a cash tax perspective uh, overall. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Howard for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit, and The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time.